Welcome to Food Safety University, episode number 28. And today I am interviewing Professor Robert Parlberg, formerly of Wellesley College, now of Harvard and Winrock and several other great institutions. We are talking today about his book called Resetting the Table. It was a super interesting read, and we have a very in-depth discussion about the upcoming face of sustainable regional agriculture and what it looks like to feed a world population. Tune in, y'all. Welcome to the Food Safety University podcast presented by Dr. Michelle Fannensteel of Dirigo Food Safety. Tune in to learn about food safety and processing in plain terms. We'll break down the ins and outs of HACCP, the food code, and much, much more so that you can easily implement and manage your own food safety program and even have some fun while doing so. Hi there and welcome to the podcast. I am so delighted to have Dr. Robert Parlberg, pardon me if I didn't pronounce that correctly, here. And Professor Parlberg uh, was in the poli-sci department at Wellesley when I was at Wellesley. And so I majored in econ, but he was downstairs and I was upstairs. And Dr. Parlberg has written this absolutely fascinating book called Resetting the Table. And I saw it and I read an excerpt from it, I think, in a Harvard publication. And I was like, I have to ask him to come onto the podcast. So, Professor, would you please introduce our, uh, yourself to the podcast audience, give us a little bit of your background, and then we'll just get to it. Okay, Michelle, it's great to be uh, uh, on your podcast. I'm a retired professor of political science at Wellesley College. I'm currently at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. I'm an associate in the sustainability science program uh, at the Kennedy School, also an associate at the, at the Weatherhead Center for International Affairs uh, at, at Harvard University. I uh, have written considerably over the years uh, about international food and agriculture. I think this is my, my 10th book, which is, uh, uh, I don't know if it's my last one or not, uh, but most of them have touched on aspects of, um, of global food and, uh, and agriculture. I've worked uh, occasionally with the International Agricultural Research System, the CGIAR. Mm-hmm. I've, I've done uh, consulting work for the U.S. Agency for International Development for the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Uh, I've spent quite a bit of time working in Africa, but this book is, uh, is focused more on uh, the food system in the United States and what's broken about the system and, and how we can fix it. Excellent. Excellent. Well, it was a completely fascinating read. So the book is called Resetting the Table. If you have not gone and read it, you should go read it because I think that it's an incredibly important conversation as we are moving into what's going to be essentially a once in a lifetime opportunity to look at actually resetting our resetting our table with the money that's coming from the government and all different initiatives and things like that. And we can do it well or we can do it poorly. Um, I I think we all would like to do it well. <laughs> so one of the, you know, I, I picked up the book after reading the excerpt in the Harvard, um, in the Harvard Journal. And 
you, the, the excerpt is from, I guess, chapter two that talks about organic um, and the organic uh, labeling and movement and some, of, and some of that stuff. And I was fascinated because I work in relocalization of agriculture, re-regionalization of American agriculture, which is not presented in a great light in your book. I think in large part because of um, inadequacy of the, the volume um, produced. But as somebody who comes out of the econ department, you know, we always talk about individually rational decisions. Why do you think people are choosing to re-regionalize agriculture anyway, and to re um, and to look at the, at more regional systems. Well, some are, uh, but they're they're still in in a very small minority. The U.S. Department of Agriculture publishes a, a census of agriculture, which maps out uh, every aspect of of food production in the country. And the latest census of agriculture counted up the the total farm sales that were made directly uh, at farmers markets or through CSAs or roadside stands or, or pick your own or uh, farm to table uh, through restaurants or farm to school mm-hmm. uh, and also through, uh, through regional food hubs, uh, everything that didn't go through the supermarket grid. Sure. And it, uh, it added up to less than 2% of total farm sales uh, in the United States. So yes, there's been some, uh, some growth in, in the local sector, but it still doesn't represent uh, more than a low single digit of the total system. And if you look at the larger trend, it's not toward localization, it's still toward globalization. Mm-hmm. In, in 1990, 11% of the food that Americans consumed was imported. Now it's it's closer to to twenty percent. So the the larger trend is is away from localization. And and why is that? I mean, I think uh, it's being uh, driven mostly by consumer preferences. Consumers want uh, convenience, and they want choice, and they want affordability. And when it comes to convenience, um, nothing beats a supermarket, especially when you can now uh, uh, order home delivery as easily as you can. When it comes to uh, uh, to affordability, uh, nothing beats uh, a supermarket. Uh, when it comes to choice, um, also uh, you you have to go beyond local to get the full range of choice that most consumers expect. Most consumers today expect to be able to get fresh fruits and vegetables uh, year round, 12 months of the year. They want tropical products, 12 months of the year. That means uh, that's, that's what's driving the increase in, in imported foods. Right now, the United States imports 50% of its fruit consumption. It imports a third of its vegetable consumption. If we, if we didn't have those uh, imports, uh, dietary uh, health in America would be even worse uh, than it is. So uh, I, uh, until you can persuade uh, consumers that they should spend a lot more time uh, shopping and spend more money shopping for a more narrow range of choice, 
um, I don't think you're going to relocalize um, our food system very much. So I think that's interesting because that does get to the points at the back of the book uh, about how about the relationship between big food uh, um, and 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 big ag uh, and how that how that it's an uneasy relationship, but boy, is it one that nobody's looking to break anytime soon. Uh, at least uh, from the writing in the book, and then and then from my experience. And if you're looking, if you're looking at that. Um, I mean, most of my listeners have, have rejected th that system and are making simpler, more artisanal foods that that are doing like may incorporate 20 percent of imported. You know, you can't make a really amazing finocchiona, which is a type of salami um, without imported spices. That's like not possible, <laughs> even if you make it from locally sourced pork. Right. I mean, most of the vast majority of the garlic in America, even the even the organic garlic no longer comes from Gilroy, California. It comes from China. Um, and so if we look at it, I think that's what a lot of people are doing. And do you see this? Do you see this idea um, of smaller portions and more and, and smaller portions and higher quality food? That's not going to take over the entire conversation. This is America, after all. <laughs> we are we are the land of the big gulp, <laughs> right? Which is, I think, an entire day's worth of sugar in one soft drink. <laughs> um, but do you see that as being any part of a viable part of the conversation? And if not, why not? <sighs> well, of course, like it's, it. a, it's a it's a big part of the conversation. Quality conscious food consumers are trying to persuade their fellow Americans to move in, a, in an eat less and higher quality food uh, direction. And it's advice that we ba badly need to, uh, to heed. If you look at, I mean, one marker for dietary health in America is obesity prevalence. And it's now 42% among American adults clinically obese. That's three times the level of the 1960s. That's up 30% from just two decades ago. And it brings a huge burden of chronic disease, especially type two diabetes and cardiovascular disease. We, we desperately need to change, uh, to change the way that we're, that we're eating. Uh, but uh, the trend lines uh, suggest that we really aren't changing that much. We've uh, reduced the consumption of sugar sweetened beverages, but it's still much too high. Um, the consumption of red meat per capita is uh, down considerably from the 1970s, but has been replaced by, by other meat products. So our meat consumption is still too high for, for personal health. Uh, we just, haven't uh, we haven't moved fast enough in the direction that your that your quality conscious audience uh, would would prefer? And what's what's the reason for that? Um, it, it's not it's not the high price of of better food. The U.S. Department of Agriculture has put together uh, what it calls its thrifty food plan. Mm -hmm. It's a, a, a collection of foods that 
for a family of four will meet all of the dietary guidelines, including for fresh fruits and vegetables. And you can, you can purchase this thrifty food uh, package for the equivalent of $2 a meal, mm-hmm. which is essentially nothing. Right. So why don't more people uh, follow the thrifty food plan uh, and, and get away from the, the more expensive, and they are more expensive proportion, ultra-processed foods that are driving our diet in the wrong direction with too much added sugar, too much salt, uh, too much fat. It, it turns out we're back to the convenience issue again. It's preparation time. The thrifty food plan expects, <laughs> expects uh, more than two hours of food preparation time. Uh, for for that family of four uh, every day. And on average, uh, American households uh, uh, spend less than one hour, uh, less than half of the preparation time that's required for the thrifty food plan. So we prefer out of convenience and because we all have microwave ovens to purchase uh, foods that have already been processed that uh, you can just heat in the oven and throw away the package and you don't even have any pans to clean up. It's, uh, it's, um, it's, I guess it indicates that uh, your, your audience has a long way to go before they convince uh, their fellow citizens of the importance of, of eating better and eating less. Um, it's, a, it's a struggle that I hope we win eventually. I think we're gonna need a, a nudge from the government to win this struggle. I think we're gonna need, um, excise taxes on sugar-sweetened beverages, not just in mm-hmm. half a dozen municipalities around the country, but at the state or eventually the federal level. I think we're gonna need a mandatory nutrition guidance on the front of packaged food goods, not just a nutrition facts panel on the side that's all fine print and small numbers. I think we need at a glance nutrition guidance, something like uh, the system in the UK, which is a traffic light system. If, you, if the sodium bar is red, you know you're going to get too much salt if you purchase that product. We need something like that. And I would like to see at least um, guidelines that would block the advertisement of junk foods to, to children. I have a long list of things that I would like to see that we're not close to doing. In Europe, they do these things. In Europe, uh, 18 different countries have at least one of these policies in place, and Europe has obesity prevalence rates only half as high as our own. So we have a, we have a huge distance to go before, uh, before your audience uh, can say that uh, its fellow citizens out there have accepted the, the desirability of eating less and eating better. Well, and I think, you know, when we talk about the affordability part of it and the convenience part of it, one of the issues that is out there is that most of my clients would like to make more convenient foods um, on like as a portion of the basket of goods that they're putting in the marketplace, right? Finocchiona is never going to be a convenient food, um, nor should it be. <laughs> and, um, but one of the issues that I that I saw in the book is is it seems like there is this assumption about a a level playing field in the in the in the regulations, 
And the ability for a big company, and I've, I have audited, so I don't, I don't know if we talked about this, but I was a food safety auditor in the Army. That's what the veterinarians do in the U.S. Army. We're the Department of Defense Executive Agent for Food Safety. And I have audited, you know, the smallest food trucks feeding Fort Hamilton at the foot of the Verrazano Narrows Bridge in New York, um, all the way to the company that makes those little tiny bottles of Tabasco sauce that go into the MREs, all the way to the M&M plant in Hackettstown, New Jersey, which makes the M&Ms for the MREs. So I've, I've like been to all the sizes. <laughs> and the regulatory burden is substantially different. And when you're making like a convenience food, we think of it as ready to eat. And all foods that are ready to eat and have to have in America have to have a uh, control for listeria. And that the way we regulate listeria in the United States, we do this like what we call hazards based regulation versus over in Europe where they do risk based regulation. So in Europe, the listeria in cheese can be at what we call 10 colony forming units per gram. So you are allowed to have listeria in cheese in France and you are not allowed to have listeria in cheese in the United States. Now, more people die of listeria in France, um, and that's the trade-off that they've been willing to make, and we are generally not willing to make those trade-offs. But um, how do you, like, looking at the, like, the examples that you have around lab-grown meat and, um, and some of the other examples, I mean, I think probably especially around lab-grown meat, there is an inequality in access to policy channels to make those regulations. And then there is a, what we call a relative over-inspection, okay, of small meat plants in particular. I have one friend who he has three inspectors in his plant every single day and the gigantic hog packer up the road that kills, that that's probably under hemp, which is the, you know, the company sets the line speeds and does all their own inspection, which he is regulatorily not allowed to do. Probably and probably is now at this point running 200 hogs a minute. And he doesn't do 200 hogs a week. And he has three inspectors and they, under hemp, may now have one or two. And so he can't make a convenience food. So what do we do about that for these small processors so they can compete? Yeah, it, it's uh, uh, regulatory hurdles, uh, which usually entail paperwork, <laughs> are inherently uh, more burdensome for very small operators than for very large operators. Uh, the, the last thing uh, a small livestock producer or a small grower needs is uh, is paperwork. <laughs> and And... I think that's been recognized at times. There was a new food safety law passed by Congress, I think in 2010. 2011. 2011, thank you. And uh, it, was, um, it was held up for a long time because small local producers thought it was going to be disadvantageous uh, to them. Uh, the big the big operators would have no trouble with the mm -hmm. added inspections and paperwork, but it would be a killer for them. So they held out, they and their friends in Congress held out until, until they got an exemption. Uh, if you're small enough and if you're selling food locally enough, you're exempt 
from some of the requirements of that of that law. And I think that's um, I think that's I, I think the safety of our food system is already uh, high enough that uh, we can we can fully afford that kind of exemption for for small producers. I know those exemptions aren't extended uh, everywhere, but I don't know I don't know if you're ever going to make it as easy for small operators to measure up to high regulatory standards as it is for for larger operators with more specialized operation, with larger professional staff, uh, with better training. Uh, you know, how, how, how is, a, how is uh, a small farmer selling at the farmer's market ever going to be able to give the personnel who go to the farmer's market and put the food out on the, on the stand uh, the same kind of, of professional food safety training that, uh, that, that you get if you're, if you're running a, the meat counter at a supermarket. Right. Well, yeah. And that's, I mean, that's kind of half of why I'm in business, but <laughs> that's what, that's what we do around here. And we have spent a lot of time talking about FISMA, which is that law, the Food Safety Modernization Act. And what is interesting, and my, my, my clients come up to this all the time is, is we did get those exemptions in there. Um, you're still not allowed to sell adulterated food. Like you, still can't kill somebody with your food <laughs> exemption or otherwise. Um, but what I find very interesting and which was kind of the natural when this was already happening before FISMA was, was enacted was that the marketplace was going towards a solution. And now we have these, do you know what the ISO system is? Yeah. So now we have all of these ISO compliance system, like the global food safety initiative schemes that are required to get in anyway. And so you have this level of regulatory compliance, but then you have market expectations, right? And your food has to, I, I tell my people, your food has to solve a problem for your customer. And sometimes that comes at the expense right. of. No, you're, you're, you're making an important point. Uh, I said, we have a, we have a high level of safety in our food system uh, and we do, but I don't think it's because of governmental regulations. Uh, I mean, I think it's because uh, operators who put food on the market in the United States know that they will be uh, badly punished if if they put uh, contaminated uh, or toxic uh, product uh, in front of uh, the innocent uh, customer uh, in the marketplace. Uh, they know that that we have we have vigorous uh, investigative journalists out there who will track down the source of the contamination. Uh, they know that we have uh, plenty of uh, highly litigious lawyers who are eager uh, to get uh, a class action lawsuit against any company that puts mm -hmm. a dangerous product uh, in the marketplace. Uh, they, they know that, uh, uh, that they will be punished badly if they make that mistake. And so they invest heavily in hazard analysis and critical control point uh, uh, processes. It came out of private industry, it didn't come out of the government. And these are, these are the expensive, but very effective systems that are used to keep our food supply safe. Uh, they, usually governmental regulations lag behind uh, what private industry in its own, own self-interest is, um, is pressured to do. 
Right. And there is, I mean, the HACCP system did come out of Pillsbury and NASA. And, and then we had the mega reg after the Jack in the Box. And that was the 96 Pathogen Reduction Act, which made HACCP mandatory in, um, uh, in, in meat plants. And what I, and it's super, what I find super interesting is, is under the new Food Safety Modernization Act, you know, we still don't know the farm where, um, the romaine outbreaks happened. They haven't named like the the FDA. They there was a carve out for not naming the farms, which I find very very interesting because parallel to that, you know, we have these two food safety systems. We have the FDA side of the house, and the USDA side of the house. And over on the USDA side of the house, at the same time as FISMA was coming out, they were putting out these uh, performance standards for Salmonella and Campylobacter, right? And they were going to publish names, but when the big houses stopped being able to pass. They stopped publishing the names. They were all good publishing the names of the small houses. And I think there are six small U.S. poultry plants left. Um, and, uh, and, and they were published, but the big houses were not. So it's, there is a definite uneven application of regulatory infrastructure. And then that gets into my next question. You know, we talk about increasing in meat consumption and we grow 30 chickens for every man, woman, and child in the United States. Um, and that goes under a contract grow system, which I'm sure you're, you're familiar with GIPSA and the contract grow um, infrastructure that we, that we have. Um, and I, I was fascinated to see that that was not part of your analysis because that is the way we grow chickens and hogs. Cause those are also contract grows here in the United States has a lot to do with the availability of all of that protein at the prices that they are at. Um, when I was in my, most of my vet degree is from Georgia and I used to go to Kroger and look at 39 cent chicken thighs. Well, I was also a secretary at St. Joe's in Athens and we did a lot of Hispanic ministry and there was a very high cost to 39 cent a pound chicken wings or, or chicken thighs. How, where did gypsum not come into it? Was, is that level, was that too far into the weeds or did, where, where did that, where did that level of analysis had not make it into the book? <sighs> yeah, well, I had, uh, I had a chapter on animal agriculture and it focused heavily on, uh, on productivity and on animal welfare. Uh, it didn't, um, it didn't go deeply into uh, marketing and and processing. Uh, I did, however, uh, point out that uh, in in both broiler chickens and in hogs, and of course in egg laying hens, we've gone from from pasture and barnyard systems into uh, into automated indoor concentrated animal feeding operations, uh, and 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 we we did that mostly to reduce labor costs uh, in the industry. And those labor costs were dramatically reduced by specialization and by automation and by uh, confinement. We, we also did it because demand for animal products uh, was increasing so rapidly. We, we consume five times as much meat now as we did in, in 1940. 
it would have been physically impossible. It would have been environmentally dangerous to try to increase the the amount of meat fivefold using uh, the methods that were uh, still in place in in 1940. The the best way for an industry that's growing that rapidly to acquire the the high volume of animal products uh, on time and at a consistent uh, quality standard. The, the best way to do that is contract farming. We've, we've learned with that many uh, live animals, it, you have to have a contractual uh, relationship. In the old days, the farmer would, uh, would, would herd the animals to town once a week and put them up for sale in the live market. Well, uh, living animals can't be marketed that way in the volume that's required today. So we have contract farming. I think the legitimate concern is that once you have a contract farming, is the, is the industry too concentrated, uh, either for the welfare of the final consumer and um, that apparently isn't the case because of those very cheap chicken legs the final consumer can get from this system. Uh, but is it also, is it maybe too concentrated for the, uh, for the welfare of, of the producer? And, and here it may, it may depend upon uh, whether uh, you've made an investment in being the kind of producer that, that thrives in this in this uh, market model, or were you a small independent producer who got squeezed out uh, because you didn't make the investment or you didn't have the resources to make the investment, or you didn't want uh, to transition into this kind of contract production uh, system. Uh, my, my book, I think mentions that in, in one county in Indiana, uh, where I interview a, a hog farmer, there used to be 100, 100, hog farms. Now there are only three. Uh, and there is uh, more concentration uh, in the industry, and there are many, many fewer small independent livestock producers. But my guess is that's mostly driven by the much higher volume of, of production that the market is demanding today, and the impossibility of sourcing that much uh, from a from hundred separate small independent producers. Right. And that is, that is, there's big issues in there. But again, it gets back to this idea of, of privatizing the profit and socializing the cost. There's a huge cost to, um, to in, in, that's associated with concentrated animal feeding operations. And, you know, for example, the, the hog houses in Iowa don't pay taxes, right? And yet they have these manure lagoons that are, um, are, are, are challenging in the extreme to the environment and to the local population. And I think that there's, there, I don't know if you would agree with this, but I don't think that the cost of, of all of the inputs goes into the actual cost of the food. Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. And I'm not, I'm not an economist, 
and I haven't studied this the way an economist uh, would. I do know that these these concentrated animal feeding operations have captured uh, some dramatic efficiency gains. Uh, Feed use efficiency is now so high that you can produce much more meat with, uh, with fewer animals, many fewer animals. And that results in less manure and less urine and, mm-hmm. and less waste. And for every pound of production, uh, less pollution. Uh, s- someone did a calculation uh, uh, based on modern uh, dairy systems in the United States compared to traditional dairy systems. And because of, of improved genetics and because of improved uh, feed and because of, uh, of some confinement, uh, the, uh, the, the burden on the climate, the greenhouse gas signature of a glass of milk today is actually two thirds smaller than it was in 1950. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I don't think that these that these operations are, are more wasteful than uh, traditional systems or even more polluting for every pound of production. They're actually less polluting. The problem is, here's back to your eating less solution. We're consuming five times as much meat today as we did in 1940. It's not the way these operations produce um, meat, it's the volume of meat they're producing that is generating the, the environmental damage. Uh, I think we have to find, well, maybe this connects to your, to your lab meat question, <laughs> where uh, we're still looking for good ways to reduce our dependence on live animals to, to satisfy our appetite for meat or for meat-like uh, products. Uh, and uh, in my book, I examine the options of both plant-based and lab-grown meat. Uh, plant-based products are are moving fast. Impossible Foods increased its production of Impossible Burgers sixfold in the last year. And uh, even with that growth, you'd think they'd be raising their prices, but no, they cut their prices twice. They want to replace uh, uh, beef patties in the, in the marketplace, and they're trying to price their product uh, to do that. If they are successful, I think... Uh, there'll be some considerable social benefits. Mm-hmm. The, the greenhouse gas uh, burden uh, of an impossible burger is 90% less than that of a, of, of a real beef patty from a methane belching uh, uh, cow. The, uh, the, the human medicine uh, benefit could be considerable. Uh, we don't use antibiotics uh, for uh, uh, for impossible burgers, uh, we do use antibiotics uh, in a lot of our livestock production systems. And that puts at risk, because of, because of antimicrobial resistance, that puts at risk the efficacy of some, of some, uh, of some antibiotics used in, in human medicine. And then of course, there's the animal welfare issue, which is very important to me. If we're worried about the way we treat animals, uh, why, not, uh, why not find a substitute? for animals, find another technology for satisfying our appetite. The, the fashion industry uh, found ways to make imitation fur so they wouldn't have to kill and, and skin animals. 
Uh, the so the shoe plastic. <laughs> the shoe industry came up with imitation leather products. Uh, so why can't the food industry come up with imitation animal products? We're doing it already. 13% of the fluid milk market now is uh, plant-based milk from almonds or coconuts or, or rice. Um, we have plant-based imitation eggs. Uh, I think it's, uh, I, I would like to see more substitution for animal products using modern science. I'm a little bothered, uh, not while we're on this subject, to see so many uh, uh, progressive food movement uh, activists rejecting plant-based imitation meats. Mm -hmm. uh, and why do they do that? Well, they don't like them for, for two reasons. Uh, first, they're corporate. And, and second, they're processed. Uh, I, you know, I don't like ultra processed foods. They're not good for you. Uh, but uh, processed foods by themselves don't have to be a problem. They certainly don't have to be, in my mind, um, a deal breaker uh, when it comes to evaluating the benefits, the multiple benefits you could get from a plant-based meat substitute. I think that's super interesting because in my head we have, you know, like the plant-based meat substitutes and the non-dairy milks and, and that, um, and that sort of thing. And they are, you know, they're regulated pretty much. I mean, you, you make non-dairy milk the, almost the same way you as you make dairy milk. I've been to both kinds of plants, <laughs> right? But then when we look at those lab grown meats and things like that, because of the regulatory playing field is so different. How are we going to go and regulate those? And then it gets to the question, actually, this kind of combines two questions that I wanted to ask you. It gets to a question of sovereignty. There are people who think that the natural extension of plant-based meats and lab-grown meats is that it becomes illegal for us to grow our own food. It becomes illegal for us to keep our own animals because the risk is too high. It's already illegal in many, many states, yours and mine, not the one I just came from, to have raw milk. There are some very, very large, you know, like there, you get huge fines in some states um, for, for having raw milk because that's what we did is we took we took our, our dairying system which had lots of public health problems i mean i am a veterinarian i totally get tuberculosis and brucellosis and raw milk is like a thing right but then we 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 created this whole milk system that then makes this kind of like small milk illegal it's illegal to, you know they made 15 15 um gallon vat pasteurizers for the interstate milk shippers list illegal <laughs> you know and so we look at this lab grown meat that has huge corporate backing in ways that you know my friends are never going to have to 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 re-regionalize local food systems and a massively uneven regulatory infrastructure where if you're growing meat why isn't fsis up in your face all the time you know, because the risk of cross-contamination is, is real. I've done, you know, I've done drug manufacturing. I used to be in preclinical trials and lab animal medicine. What does it look like if we even out the playing field by making those lab-grown meats adhere to CGMPs, which are, you know, certified good manufacturing practices, which is much more of a nutraceutical or a pharmaceutical standard, you know what I mean? Because then that. Yeah. Well, you're 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 out ahead of me on on this uh, 
on this particular topic. Uh, and in a sense, um, uh, we're out ahead of, of the industry itself. Uh, the Food and Drug Administration hasn't yet approved the marketing of any, of any lab-grown meat. It's been, I think, tentatively approved in Singapore. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but these products are, they're not yet close to the price point that they're gonna have to hit to have a significant market. Uh, the, I think the, the chicken nugget that was sold in Singapore was cost $23 a nugget. Right, right. And then you hear about the $20,000 hamburger and, yeah, and yeah. that and that sort of thing. But I think that the I think that that I, I, I don't disagree with you that that future is coming. But then the question is, is how do we create a balance so that people's right to grow their own food isn't infringed upon, uh, you know, and where do we get this? You know, like it's almost the public health conversation around it. Um, is not one that we really know how to have. <laughs> well, yeah, we had it, you know, we had it more than a hundred years ago uh, when, when we introduced pasteurization and it was a, and it was a, a tremendous public health uh, victory. It made mm -hmm. the supply much safer than it, than it had been uh, before. And uh, I mean, I, I would want to think twice before uh, reversing uh, that, uh, that victory. I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, I know that uh, if you eat unpasteurized cheese, you're not going to die. The Frenchmen are not dropping dead in the streets because, because they don't pasteurize their milk when they make cheese. But, um, uh, you know, we've had, we've had a pretty intense public health conversation uh, over things like social distancing and mask wearing. And now we're having it over, over vaccination. Mm -hmm. uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to be any less public health conscious when it comes to, to the dairy industry uh, than I would when it, when it comes to, uh, to vaccination and to uh, virus avoidance. Right. And I think that there, and, 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 I, and I get that, but I would also say that, you know, when we look at meat and we look at dairy, one, we have to worry about the black market. So, you know, our last brucellosis outbreak, raw milk, was black market raw milk. Interstate shipments of black market raw milk, which just like boggles the mind on the logistics of how you actually do that. Um, <laughs> but then the other part of it is, is that, you know, milk is last time I, I looked at the paper last week, you know, commodity milk is trading at about $17 a hundredweight. Um, organic milk usually varies between $35 and $45 a hundredweight. And raw milk can be up around $90 a hundredweight. And there are positive public health goods when, when, when milk is sold at $90 a hundredweight, uh, um, because, you know, kids go to the, kids go to the dentist, you know, and there are, there are upgrades and improvements, but I think we don't know how to have those conversations. And I don't think that we know how to have those conversations about lab grown meat or the processing of plant-based meats and, and, and having that, having an inclusive conversation so that we can see where are we paying the cost and what is the socially acceptable cost and what is where and, and what are we not paying the cost of? And again, getting back to who's benefiting and at what price. Yeah, yeah, no, that, that's well said. 
thanks. And so what do you see? So where do you see this in, you know, like as, as we look at the economies opening back up and things like that, do you see any massive changes coming along or what are, what are your circles saying? Uh, well, some, some trends that were already underway have been accelerated by the pandemic, including online food purchases and, and home delivery. Uh, that's uh, that's going to be a much larger share of consumer uh, retail behavior uh, than, it, than it was uh, even before the pandemic. It was growing rapidly. Now it's going to be uh, a larger share still. A lot of a lot of wonderful local independent restaurants have gone out of business and may never come back. And uh, the risk is that they will be replaced by large national food service chains, which will offer food that's uh, less interesting and probably uh, less tasty and less healthful than something that uh, a dedicated independent uh, restaurant owner would, would put out there. Um, otherwise, I'm not sure that we're going to see uh, dramatic differences. What fascinates me is how little disruption there was in, in the food and farming sector in the United States during the pandemic. Partly that's because agriculture was designated uh, an essential sector. And so the lockdowns did not extend uh, deeply into uh, our production or processing system. We had some emergency uh, shutdowns in pork processing in particular because of infections uh, in, in the big plants. And yet uh, you know, by the end of the year, total pork production in the United States was actually higher in 2020 mm -hmm. than it had been for an average of the five previous years. So that wasn't much of a, wasn't much of a disruption. Trade was, was scarcely uh, affected at all, U.S. agricultural imports and exports both increased uh, in in 2020. Agricultural commodity trade now is so highly automated. Sure. That it, there's very little human contact. Uh, it's all it's all containers and and barges and and uh, there isn't much of a workforce involved. And so it doesn't have to be shut down for public health reasons the way small markets uh, in developing countries had to be had to be shut down. It's um, so because because we exempted agriculture from the lockdowns, uh, we we managed to uh, avoid, I think, the kind of um, sector changing disruptions that you've seen in, in, in other places, including, including some of that uh, high-priced real estate in the financial sector in New York City, and including universities. Mm -hmm. These are going to change dramatically. <laughs> the lockdown. They've learned that uh, people don't all have to be in the same room at the same time to get things done. 
True, true. True that. And we ourselves are not in the same room at the same time. And with that, we got to end because you and I both have days to go. So thank you so much, Professor Parberg, for being here. The book is Resetting the Table, Straight Talk About the Food We Grow and Eat. Tell everybody um, how to get in touch with you if they, if, if you know, they're so inclined or um, anything else you want to add. Mm. Okay. Well, uh, my... I still have a, an email address from my Wellesley College days. Uh, I think Michelle does as well. <laughs> <Me too. laughs> Mine is R Parlberg at Wellesley, W E L L E S L E Y dot edu. Excellent. And, I, and we will include that in the show notes. <laughs> thank you. All right. Thank you so much, Professor Parlberg. You have an excellent rest of your day. Thanks for coming on the podcast. <laughs> thank you. Bye bye. Bye bye. Thanks for listening. Before you go, click the subscribe button and check us out at foodsafetyuniversity.com, where we have free food safety guides waiting for you. Until next time, keep up the great work.